Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, a library of sessions recorded at our annual conference, which celebrates art, music, story, and faith in all their many intersections. Today, we're pleased to share a session led by Mark Mennell. It's called What John Le Carre's Spies Teach Us About Conspiracy Theories, and it's from 2021's Hutchmoot Homebound. In this session, Mark looks at the long career of spy novelist John Le Carre and reflects on how our outlook as Christians ought to counteract the power of conspiracy theories. From Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, 1974. Mr. George Smiley was not naturally equipped for hurrying in the rain, least of all at dead of night. Indeed, he might have been the final form for which Bill Roach was the prototype. Small, podgy, and at best middle-aged, he was by appearance one of London's meek who do not inherit the earth. His legs were short, his gait everything but agile, his dress costly, ill-fitting, and extremely wet. His overcoat, which had a hint of widowhood about it, was of that black loose weave which is designed to retain moisture. Either the sleeves were too long or his arms were too short, for, as with Roach, when he wore his Macintosh, the cuffs all but concealed the fingers. For reasons of vanity, he wore no hat, believing rightly that hats made him ridiculous. Like an egg cosy, his beautiful wife had remarked not long before the last occasion on which she left him. And her criticism, as so often, had endured. Therefore, the rain had formed in fat, unbanishable drops on the thick lenses of his spectacles, forcing him alternately to lower and throw back his head as he scuttled along the pavement that skirted the blackened arcades of Victoria Station. He was proceeding west to the sanctuary of Chelsea, where he lived. His step, for whatever reason, was a fraction uncertain, and if Jim Priddo had risen out of the shadows demanding to know whether he had any friends, he would probably have answered that he preferred to settle for a taxi. On the 12th of December 2020, we lost one of the great stylists of contemporary English literature at the age of 89, David Cornwall, better known by his pen name, John le Carre. Uh, He arguably turned spy novels into great literature and high art. Um, He once mused in an interview that uh, if he had been working as a plumber, he'd have ended up writing novels about plumbing, but he'd been a spy. Now, uh, he'd seen active service, but he denied it for years, um, and he never once spoke publicly about any of his operations, even after finally admitting to having worked in the intelligence world. And that was actually in common with many of the great British spy novelists. Um, They'd all done it before him. Somerset Maugham, Ian Fleming, Graham Greene, all of them had been spies. John le Carre was in both the British Domestic Intelligence Service, MI5, and then in the Overseas Service, MI6, more properly known as SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service. Uh, He had studied German at university, he spoke it fluently, And so in uh, the Cold War, he was posted to Hamburg and to Bonn in West Germany. So all in all, he was in active service for about 10 years. And while in Germany, he was actually there stationed uh, when the Berlin Wall went up. He was uh, immediately packed off to Berlin and he remembers and recalls watching 
the soldiers building it up that Sunday uh, in 1961. So here in his breakout masterpiece that was published in 63, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, we are in the wall's shadow. From The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, 1963. They walked quickly, Lemus glancing over his shoulder from time to time to make sure she was following. As he reached the end of the alley, he stopped, drew into the shadow of a doorway and looked at his watch. Two minutes, he whispered. She said nothing. She was staring straight ahead toward the wall and the black ruins rising behind it. Two minutes, Lemus repeated. Before them was a strip of 30 yards. It followed the wall in both directions. Perhaps 70 yards to their right was a watchtower. The beam of its searchlight played along the strip. The thin rain hung in the air so that the light from the arc lamps was sallow and chalky, screening the world beyond. There was no one to be seen, not a sound an empty stage. The watchtower's searchlight began feeling its way along the wall toward them, hesitant. Each time it rested, they could see the separate bricks and the careless lines of mortar hastily put on. As they watched, the beam stopped immediately in front of them. As, sorry. As they watched, the beam stopped immediately in front of them. Lemus looked at his watch. Ready, he said. She nodded. Taking her arm, he began walking deliberately across the strip. Liz wanted to run, but he held her so tightly that she couldn't. They were halfway toward the wall now, the brilliant semicircle of light drawing them forward, the beam directly above them. Lemus was determined to keep Liz very close to him, as if he were afraid that Munt would not keep his word and somehow snatch her away at the last moment. They were almost at the wall when the beam darted to the north, leaving them momentarily in total darkness. Still holding Liz's arm, Lemus guided her forward blindly, his left hand reaching ahead of him until suddenly he felt the coarse, sharp contact of cinder brick. Now he could discern the wall, and looking upward, the triple strand of wire and the cruel hooks which held it. Metal wedges, like climbers' pythons, had been driven into the brick, Seizing the highest one, Lemus pulled himself quickly upward until he had reached the top of the wall. He tugged sharply at the lower strand of wire and it came toward him, already cut. Come on, he whispered urgently, start climbing. Laying himself flat, he reached down, grasped her upstretched hand and began drawing her slowly upward as her foot found the first metal rung. Suddenly, the whole world seemed to break into flame. From everywhere, from above and beside them, massive lights converged, bursting upon them with savage accuracy. To fill up some of his time when he wasn't working, um, and he described how actually, as many others have um, commented as well, that uh, being a spy actually entails long hours of real tedium. He just started writing in his spare time. He actually published a couple of novels, as was uh, the enforced rule for those working in intelligence, he had to publish under a pseudonym, under a pen name. And so he thought of something that was sort of vaguely exotic, something that had an air of mystery about it. So he chose this completely uh, sort of fabricated name, John le Carre. But it wasn't till his third novel, The Spy Who Came In From The Colds, coming out in 63, that suddenly um, he went global. In the days before it was possible, he went viral. And um, his accountant... Uh, after about six months of this book coming out, his accountant actually wrote to him and said, you can pretty much retire now. 
So what was it about that book particularly that really revolutionized uh, spy novels and actually the whole approach in fiction to what was going on in the Cold War? Well, uh, let's think about a few aspects of this. Uh, uh, I've called it lurking in the, in the shadows, the, the world of the Cold War spy. He's most famous for uh, the character of George Smiley. And in some ways, you could say that Smiley is the kind of anti-Bond. Of course, James Bond had already featured uh, in uh, many of Fleming's novels by this point, but also one or two of the movies were beginning to come out with Sean Connery. Um, and this is what uh, Le Carre said in conversations with a, a journalist a few years later when asked about Bond. Um, and this was his comment. He said, oh, yes, I utterly despise Bond. I despise the short answer in the perfectly made world. I believe that most of us live in doubt and that that is what animated the people who read my book. They felt, well, gosh, this is organized chaos. There is just no solution. I never knew a solution. You're constantly trying. And I think that's what people recognize. And then, then they put me in a corner where it seemed to be that I became a kind of guru. But I'm really not that kind of person. I'm not a person of conviction. If I were, I wouldn't write. No glamour, no notoriety. He writes about institutions and bureaucracy, prejudices, incompetences, and the appalling waste of lives and life. Now, to be fair, Le Carre did not see a kind of moral equivalence between the two sides of the Cold War. Uh, so, for example, when his former boss, Kim Philby, so he'd been, uh, Philby had been um, very senior in British intelligence. In fact, he was even being tipped to become head of MI6. When Philby finally defected to Russia after betraying everything that he'd encountered since the 30s, um, Le Carre was invited years later to go and meet him. In fact, uh, by the now, it was still in the final years of the Cold War. Um, uh, but uh, Le Carre was by then a famous novelist, um, globally recognized. He was invited to some literary festival or, or something in Moscow. And um, he, he had a message passed to him saying that Kim Philby would like to meet him. And Le Carre was utterly appalled. He couldn't think of anything worse he would rather do. Um, because actually, apart from anything else, it's highly likely that Le Carre had been forced to leave MI6 because he was now um, busted, basically, because he would have been on one of the many lists that Philby gave to Moscow. And this was in marked difference um, from Graham Greene, who actually had been a very close friend of Philby. Interestingly, when Philby wrote his memoirs, My Secret War, um, long after he defected, Graham Greene um, was happy to write uh, a foreword for it. Uh, but no such thing with uh, Le Carre. And um, he was furious with the fact that many people had actually lost their lives directly as a result of things that uh, Philby had betrayed. So there's not a sort of moral equivalence. He did see that the Communist East was a totalitarian, oppressive and uh, sinister regime. However, this did not mean that in his eyes the West was innocent, far from it. And nor did it mean that capitalism could escape, escape critique. Hardly. 
uh, several of his novels written post-1989, after the war has come down, you know, so people, journalists would ask him, so, you know, what are you going to write about now, you know, now that we've won the Cold War? Well, <laughs> there was no room for complacency, and Le Carre turned his sort of biting, sharp critique onto the capitalist West um, with novels like A Constant Gardener, which focuses on just the appalling exploitation of Africans by the pharmaceutical industry, and so on and so forth. But, uh, of course, there's a sense in which uh, that must be right, that there's never room for complacency, especially in a God-haunted universe. Because none of us is innocent. No system is ever innocent. And um, Le Carre was quite clear, not because he had a sort of particular theological perspective. He, he, he was agnostic for much of his uh, adult life. Um, but there was something of the prophetic about him and about his anger. Um, some people criticize his later books for actually being much less nuanced. But actually, I think the thread of anger and fury at injustice and incompetence, almost in equal measure, that runs all the way through his writing career... Um, and uh, there's a breathtaking moment in um, uh, The Secret Pilgrim, which is essentially a book of uh, sort of short stories about George Smiley. I guess they were sort of things that he sort of kept in his notebook, little ideas, um, little episodes that occurred to him in his imagination. He would jot them down. And so he pulled these together uh, in 1990 in The Secret Pilgrim. And um, it, it, it has Smiley reflecting on his career while teaching at a, a fictitious MI6 training college. He's invited by a former protégé of his long after his retirement, and see he goes to give a lecture. And it's fascinating to, to hear what his reflections are after the Cold War has so-called been won. From The Secret Pilgrim, published in 1990. Smiley declared comfortably, there are some people who, when their past is threatened, get frightened of losing everything they thought they had and perhaps everything they thought they were as well. Now, I don't feel that one bit. The purpose of my life was to end the time I lived in. So if my past were still around today, you could say I'd failed. But it's not around. We won. Not that the victory matters a damn. And perhaps we didn't win anyway. Perhaps they just lost. Or perhaps without the bonds of ideological conflict to restrain us anymore, our troubles are just beginning. Never mind. What matters is that a long war is over. What matters is the hope. Removing his spectacles from his ears, he fumbled distractedly with his shirt front, looking for I could not imagine what, until I realized that it was the fat end of the necktie on which he was accustomed to polishing his lenses. But an awkwardly assembled black bow tie provides no such conveniences, so he used his silk handkerchief from his pocket instead. If I regret anything at all, it's the way we wasted our time and skills. All the false alleys and bogus friends the misapplication of our energies, all the delusions we had about who we were. He replaced his spectacles and, as I fancied, turned his smile upon myself. And suddenly, I felt like one of my own students. It was the 60s again. I was the fledgling spy, and George Smiley 
tolerant, patient, clever George was observing my first attempts at flight. So um, we see that Smiley is the kind of anti-Bond. He's not glamorous. He doesn't have easy answers. And, you know, the, the, the problems that he battles with are not solved just by his double-O license to kill. Uh, it is much more complicated and, well, certainly grey than that. But behind the sort of fiendish plotting and uh, the sort of the, the, this incredible... Um, chess player mind at work in Smiley, uh, there lurks a deep, deep pain. And um, George Smiley is a character who is extraordinarily difficult to pin down and, and understand, but I think what is clear is that he is a very broken person. He's the protagonist of uh, five novels in total and actually a central character in four more um, and those novels, those nine novels, are written over a span of 50 years. He would keep coming back to this, this central character. Uh, the most extraordinary of these uh, appearances comes in uh, the final book, A Legacy of Spies, which came out in 2017, when Le Carre was 86. And I managed to get tickets to the grand launch, which was unusual. It was in the National Theatre in London, so it was a huge event extraordinary grand affair, and pretty much anybody who was anyone from the, the British creative world um, was, was present. So it was quite fun to sit in the audience and spot all kinds of famous people. When I say anyone who's everyone, I meant everyone who's, anyone who's everyone plus me and a couple of mates. And so we were there watching, and he gave a talk as well as being interviewed. And he had the grace to admit that actually, strictly being accurate, George Smiley, if uh, things had planned out, worked out as he wrote in the books. George would have to have been about 110, 115 years old uh, for it all to completely sort of work. So he's obviously stretching things a bit. He clearly shares some kind of sort of genetic profile with the Old Testament patriarchs, or at least he ages slower than most people. But that aside, this career expands over um, an extraordinary period of political turmoil. But uh, one uh, scholar has said that of the various spies of English, uh, English language fiction by British and American novelists, from James Bond and Johnny English, I guess, to Jack Ryan and Jason Bourne, Smiley is probably the only one who conceivably could have been real and have really existed. Um, apart from anything else, he's pretty much the only one that you would never pick out of a crowd. I mean, if, if Sean Connery or um, uh, any of the other Bonds just walks down the street, heads would turn, wouldn't they? There's no way that this guy um, <laughs> can sort of stick in the shadows. There's just no way, you know, quite apart from whether he's got a sort of um, a tuxedo under his wetsuit or something like that. This guy stands out. Well, that couldn't be said of Smiley. He is socially awkward. He is banal. He's mundane. He's nondescript. He's gauche. He's actually quite shy. doesn't really have all the social niceties. And yet what makes, for instance, Alec Guinness's portrayal of Smiley in the BBC TV series from the 80s, uh, what makes Guinness, I think, vastly better than Gary Oldman, uh, who played Smiley in, in the film Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, um, is I think that Guinness really got that. I mean, even Gary Oldman was someone you, you know, people might turn their heads if they passed. But um, Guinness's smiley, no way. 
And um, the thing is, though, you see, what makes him so powerful, so effective as a master spy is precisely the fact that you don't notice him. And beneath the drab exterior lies a razor-sharp mind of kind of chess grandmaster proportions. And that is what makes watching him so compelling, because you really don't know what he's seeing that you've missed. But here's the thing. Over the course of his decade-long career, George Smiley finds that practically everybody betrays him. Every single person, more or less, with one or two exceptions. I'll try to avoid spoiling too many plots, but um, a, a feature of a number of the novels is his aristocratic wife, Lady Anne, who's obviously a beauty, who's obviously, you know, a, a sort of centre of the social world uh, in, in upmarket London. She has an affair with one of Smiley's closest colleagues. And it subsequently uh, comes about that we discover that this colleague was a deep KGB agent inside British intelligence, a character clearly based on Kim Philby. And in fact, the book Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is, is Le Carre's way of just trying to work through the turmoil uh, that the Philby defection caused in the British establishment. My father was in the British Army and... Um, uh, he was stationed in Cyprus in the 60s, and um, they would often, um, you know, for leave, a uh, few days, holiday, or whatever, they would go over to Beirut in the days when Lebanon was this amazing kind of sort of pleasure ground uh, and a beautiful place. It's hard to imagine that now after all the turmoil in that region. But in the 50s and 60s, it was the kind of, you know, Riviera destination. And, um, and Philby, in his final years in the West, had been working as a journalist for The Times, in Beirut, uh, while doing a bit of work on the side, apparently, for MI6. And it was from Beirut that Philby finally defected, getting um, uh, whisked away on a Soviet tanker uh, in the port. Um, and my father remembers actually going on holiday just for a few days to Beirut, probably about six months after Philby's defection, and he was at a British base, um, a, a sort of retreat house for officers and other people, and he said, you know, six months on, in the, the place from which Philby had defected, the, the shock was still palpable. They just couldn't understand what had happened. Because the whole point about Philby is that he was one of us. He was officer class. He was reliable. He was one of the chaps the chaps trust. And yet he had been selling everything, not for money, but for convictions to the Russians since the 1930s. Can you imagine what would have happened if he'd actually become head of MI6? Which was, you know, it was talked about. It was distinctly possible. And so Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy as a carries trying to sort of process uh, the consequences of this. And so, you know, this close friend of Smiley's ends up being this KGB agent. And then we discover that actually the affair he'd had with Lady Anne Smiley was started on KGB orders precisely, deliberately, to mess with Smiley's head. Which, of course, it did. And in an ironic, sort of conniving way to put Smiley off this character's scent because he would always doubt his suspicions, assuming that it was all confused by the betrayal of the affair. It was ingenious. 
But then as time goes on, actually the service, the British intelligence service lets Smiley down, betrays him, especially when there is generational change. Don't we know this so often? That people can be at the top of an establishment one minute and then maybe a decade later when there's just, you know, clean broom and there are new people and there are different priorities, different ideologies, different values even. Suddenly the old guard just gets swept away and not only do they get swept away and become irrelevant, they actually become a liability. I mean, that's one of the extraordinary things about the book, The Legacy of Spies, written 50 years after a spy who came in from the cold, it revisits those events and casts a completely different spin on them. And Smiley and his colleagues, Peter Gwillem being the main one, have to suddenly come to terms with the fact that with the politically correct government who are trying to sort of kind of rewrite history or at least deal with scandals that come to light and journalists make great sort of hay out of, he realizes that actually they're not going to protect him. In fact, they're putting them out to be completely crucified because that's what institutions do. And then there's the CIA. Um, Le Carre is known for uh, more than just a sort of thread or a hint through his books of anti-Americanism. There's definitely that kind of thread there. You see it also in Graham Greene's novels. Uh, the CIA is an organisation that's a kind of sort of presence throughout uh, the novels, and they're consistently described uh, without any affection whatsoever as the cousins. Um, it's just an incidental point that actually Le Carre is known for creating a whole range of um, words, vocabulary for the spying world, and the extraordinary thing is that these have become so influential that actually the spying world now uses the words he created. So the whole idea of a mole inside an organisation, that is from Le Carre and uh, people who are lamplighters or, or, or um, you know, going to confession, like going to see a priest, is, is what um, uh, someone out who's an agent or an informer out there does when they come and see their handler. Um, all this kind of language and talk of the CIA as the cousins, it's all from Le Carre's imagination. So, for instance, in the novel The Honourable Schoolboy... That's set in British Hong Kong in the 1970s with the Cold War conflicts in Indochina raging still. It becomes clear that the CIA has, well, very different priorities from the now fading post-colonial, post-imperial British intelligence. And the British intelligence has nothing like the budget and reach of the American cousins. And what happens in that novel with absolutely devastating consequences, is that the, the different agendas just do not align with British intelligence, with what Smiley has been trying to do throughout the book. And so all that he's been uh, seeking to achieve is basically just flushed away and people die and people become cynical as a result. It's devastating. So the question then is, well, what about, what about Smiley's sanity? If everybody and everything is betraying him, how do, you, how do you hold up? How do you sort of hang in there in the face of this kind of stuff? That's the thing that really intrigues me about, um, well, just about the whole world that Le Carre um, is exploring. Back in 2014, I had the privilege of being able to interview him uh, while I was researching a book, and uh, we had a couple of hours in his home in London. And I particularly wanted to pick his brains about this precise point. Because, you see, if Smiley has betrayed everybody, 
And as we see, he literally has only one or two trusted friends left. He doesn't have children. He doesn't have family. His wife is long gone. Why doesn't he go insane? Why doesn't he go mad? Now, the reason for asking that is not theoretical. Because you see, the background is what happened to real-life spy, uh, a man with the extraordinary name of James Jesus Angleton. He uh, was very senior in the CIA. He had been part of the CIA's kind of sort of embryonic work, the OSS, the Office for, uh, was it Secret Service? Oh, scrub that line, I can't remember what it was called. Uh, but he had been stationed in London during the Second World War, which is when Angleton got to know a number of um, British agents, including Kim Philby and others. And um, Angleton then rose to become the CIA's chief counter-espionage uh, guy, which means his job was primarily to try and root out uh, Soviet agents working in the West, and particularly in the States. And uh, when Philby, when he was you know, on the ascendant, was stationed in, of all places, Washington, D.C., as MI6's main liaison with the CIA. I mean, do you get the ironies of that? Working with the CIA's main anti-mole um, uh, sort of counter-espionage guy, you know, Philby and Angleton would have lunch once a week. They would drink a lot of alcohol, and they would talk about all kinds of stuff, and maybe sometimes reminisce about the good old days during the London Blitz. But during this time... Angleton thought they were just enjoying one another's company and hanging out. Philby was milking him for everything. And everything that Philby discovered would end up within days on senior desks in Moscow. And even, this is the interesting, interesting thing, even when suspicions about Philby were being raised in London and Washington by senior people, including, actually at one point, somebody even naming uh, Philby in the House of Commons in Parliament, even at this point, alongside other people in the UK, Angleton was defending Philby to the hilt. He says, you can trust this man. I own my life. I trust him with my life. And... Um, when Philby finally defected, Angleton, Angleton was utterly devastated. And he was a broken man, never uh, the same again. And in a way, Angleton did go mad. He, uh, so much so that he, had, he, he was forced to retire from the CIA because he'd be, just become so unreliable. Uh, and, you know, he would see behind every even minor setback, I mean, you know, to put it crudely, maybe even sort of running out of photocopy paper or whatever it might be, behind every single thing that stood uh, to trip them up, he would see Philby's hand at work. Whereas actually the reality was that Philby was, you know, pretty much an alcoholic and um, sort of broken man himself. He wasn't really ever fully trusted by the Soviets, even when he was in Moscow, because they always feared, there was always the suspicion that Philby might be a triple agent. But Angleton uh, just saw conspiracies and plots behind every bush. He went mad. He could not hold on to reality. So I asked LeCarrie, why, why didn't Smiley go the way of Angleton? And uh, in our conversation, his response was devastating. This is what he said. Smiley starts with a deep human pessimism. 
He cannot go much lower in his expectations or disappointment at other people's betrayals. Do you see the point? In other words, nothing surprises him. Now, that is crucial to his genius, uh, since a bit like G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown, it enables Smiley to inhabit the worlds of all those he's pitted against, you know, in the labyrinthine complexities of his duel with his KGB archenemy, Carla, then uh, Smiley's able to plan multiple moves ahead. Now, viewed through a biblical lens, of course, Smiley lacks the grounds for any optimism whatsoever. He has no doctrine of creation, no doctrine of the Imago Dei. For Smiley, all is bleak and dark, and presumably for Le Carre too. But he does get human depravity. Much better than many Christians, in fact. Isn't that one reason why so many people in recent years have found it almost impossible to believe in victims of abuses who've tried to get their stories out, tried to get people to believe them? Isn't that why so many people just don't listen or reject? They just can't believe in these abuses, sexual or psychological or whatever else, of previously respected Christian leaders in recent scandals in the US and in the UK very recently too. Now, of course, in the world, and we see this especially in social media and so on, in the world, um, there are no grounds for uh, even showing mercy or forgiveness to the truly repentant. Basically, it is cancel culture. It's the self-righteousness that says, one strike and you're out. When... Uh, the same spirit infects the church, it is truly ugly and hellish, a word I use advisedly. However, while the church is mandated by the gospel to offer grace and forgiveness always, we tend to make the opposite error, I think. We forfeit truth and true confession and continue to trust those people with power, in power, even after cyclical and ingrained habits of power abuse have been exposed. We just, we just refuse to go there. We won't believe it. As if grace is somehow the opposite of truth. You never get that in the Lord Jesus Christ, ever. Grace and truth are unable to be prized apart. And what's more, forgiveness for the repentant is not the same as trusting the repentant in the same way as before. Now, that's a whole other thing. Trust might just be rebuilt, but it takes time and it is never automatic. It might be possible to give people responsibility again, give them authority again, perhaps, but it is never automatic. The point is, though, grace is not the opposite of truth-telling. Confession is not just about managing the situation and dealing with the publicity. It's about facing reality, facing the darkness of human sin when it is exposed. And I think that's one of the fascinating things about Smiley is that he does that. And as I said, I think he does that often better than many Christian believers. And so this finally brings us to the world of the conspiracy theory. How do we navigate 
conspiracy theories? And can Le Carre and George Smiley and these novels help us in any way? Well, I've been chewing on this uh, subject for a very long time, at least about 10 years now. And I have to say that the more I analyze and think about and read about conspiracy theories, the less that I've become a conspiracy theorist. And yet I've also come to be much more understanding and sympathetic to why people buy into them. And I think we can detect a number of common features. I'll just pick out one or two in my final moments. Um, and uh, there are pointers and people who have done lots of studies on this. There are all kinds of ways one can do this. But let me just pick out a handful. The first uh, sort of common feature I want to call is the legacies of betrayal. You see, nobody wants to be taken for a sucker. So the natural and wise response to lies, to fake news, to a fallen world is skepticism. Uh, that's wise. You don't want to be gullible. Uh, this is a healthy way of surviving and indeed thriving. But compound that with a sense of being betrayed, being hurt, especially if that betrayal was by people you trusted and relied upon, whose authority you cherished and even advocated to others. Well, the natural response is deep suspicion. That is normal. And George Smiley was the master of suspicion. Le Carre's plots are fiendish precisely because of Smiley's ability to outthink his enemies. Smiley is always six or seven moves ahead. It's a matter of self-preservation and protection of doing his job well. He's never surprised by the evil and uh, plotting in others. Now, what is so hard in keeping a handle on suspicions is to make sure that they don't get completely out of control, that they don't go wild, as happened with James Angleton. And I've actually seen this in one or two friends who've been really badly hurt and then understandably lose all sense of proportion and find it Im almost impossible to trust anybody and anything. The Dalai Lama once said, after years of trying to negotiate with China, China about... Um, uh, his people, uh, he said, once bitten by a snake, you feel suspicious when you see a piece of rope. So the legacies of betrayal are real. But secondly, the reality of conspiring. I mean, let's face it, the most notorious in this country, at least, is, of course, Watergate. I mean, don't you just love the acronym of the committee to re-elect the president? Creep. I mean, it doesn't get better. I mean, you know, that is worthy of Le Carre himself. And they did indeed conspire against the Democrats. Funds were channeled to corrupt ends, which is why Woodward and Bernstein's source, Deep Throat, told them to follow the money. There was conspiracy there, and it came to light. It's reality. Conspiring takes place. So in boardrooms, in situation rooms, dare I say it, even in church council rooms, People do conspire and plot and scheme against perceived enemies. They seek to use subterfuge and deceit in order to overcome and come out on top. And conspiracies happen. History is full of them. There's nothing new in that. They're as old as the hills because people have been conspiring since the dawn of time. It's just a fact. So a conspiracy theorist will always say to you, I'm just being a realist. 
Look in the history books. I don't want to be gullible, do you? The appeal is strong. But I think there's a deeper appeal to all this stuff. It goes far beyond the need for self-protection. So we've seen the legacies of betrayal, the reality of conspiring. Thirdly, the comfort from culprits. What do I mean by that? Well, life is full of bad things, terrible things. History is littered with forces that trample over millions. And for every major event that we learn about in history books, countless numbers of little people get ignored or worse, destroyed. And then for those left behind, those who are the victims or the the, the people on the sides of these great movements of history, those on the side, they're, they're desperate for answers. Who's done this? Who can be held to account? Is justice even possible? Uh, British journalist and historian David Aronovich, someone I found incredibly helpful um, in all of this, his book Voodoo Histories is absolutely unputdownable. But he said this, there is a more than plausible argument to be made that very often conspiracy theories take root amongst the casualties of political, social or economic change the casualties of social, political, social, or economic change. And you see, there's a comfort here. Now, that may seem strange because, you see, a conspiracy theory provides a narrative, especially a narrative with an ending, an ending that we might not necessarily like, but at least it makes more sense than the fact that, oh, well, just stuff happens. It's not necessarily a happy ending, but that's okay. There's a comfort in even knowing the negative, the the unhappy ending. It's still an ending. But actually, if you think about it, there are very few real endings in life. Life goes on. There's something else around the corner. So, for example, in writing about the, the, the tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and all the conspiracy theories that sort of floated around about that, and, you know, just dig around on Google, you'll find more, Uh, Scholar Sarah Churchill said this, that the the idea of some CIA plot to rub her out, I guess to prevent her speaking out about JFK or something like that, uh, she said this, and I quote, "The uh, the idea that there's a conspiracy is the only narrative that promises a reason for her early death. Reality offers no such assurance. And something very similar happened, for instance, when Princess Diana died in that car crash. Oh, it was, it was the Duke of Edinburgh, or there was some plot by this, that, and the other. Well, that makes us understand it better, even if it's absurd. So, for instance, whenever there is a, a, um, a general election or a presidential or a local election, Do you notice that both left and right actually still play the same game? This is not a party political point at all. Whenever one side loses an election, it's so easy to blame the failure to win on a conspiracy rather than that the other guy did better. Or to say that the other side didn't play fair and square. We would have won otherwise. We was robbed. But... As I close, this is where the rubber hits the road. You see, the fourth point is what I've called the impossibility of complexity. John le Carré constructs stories of such fiendish complexity uh, that, um, you know, many people start reading the books and give up quite soon afterwards because they just don't understand what's going on. 
And, and you have to really, you have to be patient. It, it might take several chapters even before you can identify who's an important character. I mean, in the early pages, there might be names of people who you realize actually later on are not that significant, just an event happens that has significance. But you're not going to get that initially. And this is all part of the deliberate uh, way of his, his style. And part of the intellectual appeal of the books is, of course, that you try to catch up and figure it all out. It's, a, it's a, a vast puzzle. But here's the thing. It's all impossible. There's just no way that these kinds of plots could ever happen in real life. They just could not. That is not because life is simple. Far from it. You and I know this full well, don't we? The contemporary world is stupidly complex. How on earth do we begin No, what is impossible is trying to manage and overcome it. There are just too many contingencies, too many unknowns, too many players, too many variables, too many accidents, too many unforeseens. And Le Carre himself is the first to admit this. Here he is in an interview from the 90s, and he mentions two British scandals you probably won't know much about, but uh, the scandal of the Liberal Party leader, Jeremy Thorpe. Um, if you've seen the TV series with Hugh Grant, a very English scandal, this was um, uh, the story of Jeremy Thorpe. Or another of the Cambridge spies, Anthony Blunt, who ended up as the Queen's senior art person. He'd been a KGB agent all his life, or certainly for the early years. So this is what Le Carre said. The one thing that is extremely difficult to dramatize is the persistent quality of human incompetence, particularly in the British administration. I don't think the spy who came in from the cold could ever have happened. And I don't believe it's ever possible to operate such a clean conspiracy where all the pieces fit together. He goes on, whether it's the Thorpe affair or the Blunt affair, if you have to choose between conspiracy or shambolic incompetence, my instinct is to go for the shambles every time. And in writing, one has to tread a very fine line between the reality of incompetence and the reader's very human wish to visit a world where logic and action have a reasonable relationship to each other. Do you see the point? That actually, life is just doesn't work like this. And however fiendish and dastardly human conspiracies might be, they just just cannot work like this because it just depends on too many things that no human being can control. You see, think of the ultimate conspiracy, the one, you know, the daddy of them all, Watergate. What an incompetent and pathetic conspiracy that was. I mean, that's not going to sort of cause World War III or change the world or anything. It's just a few bumbling idiots who couldn't steal stuff from an office. It was pathetic. And they couldn't even keep that secret. And it brought down a government. What makes you think you can believe all this other stuff that is so dastardly and is at the heart of all governments in the West and the East and everywhere else? It's just too much. And so here's the final point, ironically, what I call the, the credulity of the conspiracist. You see, I think it takes more gullibility and credulity to believe the conspiracy theorist than to believe an official explanation. And even if you don't believe the official explanation, and often there are good reasons not to, 
it is far more likely that any official denials are not there to protect the plots of conspirators. Instead, they're there to protect the pride of the incompetent. So I think all in all, we need to take the dimensions of human power very seriously indeed. In the last 32 years since I came to Christ, I've heard thousands of sermons about money and sex. And of course, both continue to devour and undermine believers in equal measure. And I myself have felt the force of temptations in both areas. Who hasn't? But I don't think, I was scratching my head, I don't think I've heard a single sermon or talk that in its entirety properly grapples with what it means to have power. And yet, money, sex, and power, those are the big three that people often talk about. We must come to Christ on our knees and learn again, perhaps, or for the first time if needed, how he handled power and what he did with it and in whose interests he wielded it. And then we need to be measured against that benchmark. And until the church does this, we will be cast alongside all the other power mongers who have abused and betrayed and thus been rightly written off and despised. Despised with good reason. And that is one of the most painful things about the recent scandals and tragedies of big name power abusers who use their power for all kinds of different ends, sexual, psychological, financial, whatever it is. But it is an abuse of power at its heart. They have failed utterly to come to terms with what Christ did with his power and do not uh, seek to emulate and live in his light. And yet we're surprised. Well, the thing that strikes me most is George Smiley would not have been surprised. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmood is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmood is an annual arts conference hosted by the Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered. 